Talkers. Welcome to Speaking Destroy, episode 99. Speaking Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Aaron Weaver, drummer for the band Wolves in the Throne Room. This was an engaging and enlightening conversation, which of course is always the aim here. But Aaron in particular is a very thoughtful, intellectual, and spiritual kind of guy. And in addition to those things, he is a consummate Metallica fan. In this episode, we speak quite a bit about Lars Ulrich in particular, Metallica in general, and of course, Wolves in the Throne Room. You may recognize the band from seeing them on the cover of Decibel Magazine. Aaron and his brother Nathan started the band back in 2002 and have gone on to much acclaim, both within the metal world and without. Speaking to Story Patreon supporters get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives over the years. I've posted two different conversations with Kirk Hammett, as well as an interview with Glenn Danzig, one with Randy Blythe from Lamb of God, and many more. You can find Speaking to Story on social media, on Instagram. I'm regularly posting a whole bunch of stuff, Metallica-related, of course, from over the years. Doing the same thing on Twitter and on Facebook. On YouTube, I have a variety of playlists doing deep dives to uncover lots of Metallica gems. And I'm in the process of getting some episodes loaded up to YouTube as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And if you would be so kind, please go into Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice. Leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review because those do help. Speaking to Stroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. In this conversation with Aaron, you'll hear me describe a bit about No Prize from God, one of the other podcasts, where I hope to have Aaron on as a guest there soon as well. So here it is, my conversation with Aaron Weaver of Wolves in the Throne Room. This is Speak and destroy. actually you know come from uh, print journalism originally and then uh, broadcast news uh, for a while and you know i used to go you know i would spend an afternoon with wolves in the throne room at your sound check with a, a whole crew and we'd be setting up you know individual interviews with each of you talking to each of you for 20 minutes and then i would be back cutting it down to a 30 second news hit that's going to air during headbangers ball on mtv2 once on saturday night at midnight <laughs> so having come from that background like i this is so much better suited to me being able to have just natural free-flowing conversations and knowing that there is an audience now that you know i'm not i don't have to leave all these gems on the cutting room floor that just happen conversationally in pursuit yeah, of some like quick soundbite so yeah, man, music is a deep thing. And yeah, that soundbite way of approaching it was never really satisfactory. Um, yeah, this new not. era we're in is uh, way more satisfying for me as a music fan and a listener to really be able to hear what's happening inside someone's mind and heart and uh, connect with people through this medium. I could not agree more. It was quite astute and well said. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation. And I know that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I've always appreciated about the band is that in an age where everything, you know, there's so much voyeurism and so much exhibitionism from just the everyday lay person. I appreciate that your band has protected some element of mystique while, um, you're not inaccessible by any means. There are, there's, you know, there's still a vibe that I think is more reminiscent of, uh, an earlier era you know of bands that we i'm sure both 
grew up loving where, you know, you knew certain things, but there were certain things that were still shrouded in a bit of mystery, you know, like, I mean, I, do I appreciate knowing that King Diamond likes NASCAR? Sure. It's a fun fact. Do I like seeing his Christmas photo in front of his Christmas tree? Awesome. But there's a lot to be said for being a kid and imagining that he just like dissipated into a fine mist after a show and traveled back to a castle somewhere, <laughs> you know, turned into a bat maybe. Uh, so, yeah, so yeah. I've always appreciated that about wolves that you have, you've maintained a little bit of that old school mystique without, you know, being total recluses. Yeah, it's crucial to, it's just what we want, you know? Um, and maybe it's because we are children of the 90s. And in those days, of course, we had no access to anything beyond what you'd dig up in some crusty fanzine mm -hmm. or maybe just a glimpse of a Morbid Angel video and Headbangers Ball in the middle of the night um, or coming across. Or in the middle of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> yeah, man. Beavis and Butthead turned a lot of people on to metal for sure. Bow to um, me faithfully. Yeah. I mean, I think that might be where I first came across Morbid Angel now that I think about it. <laughs> no, I, th I, think, I think we were into it before that. And we can claim a bit more cred than just being turned on by Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> which, which, you know, you got to remember in the last 10 years, how many bands I've interviewed that cite Blink-182 and Linkin Park, like their Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. So if, if someone time. discovered Morbid Angel via Beavis and Butthead, that, that qualifies as cred at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's a weird, it's a weird world. Things are upside down. Um, yeah, man, atmosphere and, um, uh, mystery is just so central to our our vision of what we do. And I think another thing is that, I mean, the image that we put out there is not, it's not an image. Right. Um, like we actually do live in the forest. We actually are doing this magic. Um, we do communicate with spirits of the forest and they speak through us, through the music. Um, it's real. It's real to us. It's our lives. It's our hearts. It's our souls. Um, and so it's not, it's not difficult to, um, on one hand, have to project us as if we live in a cave and sleep upside down like bats, and then we go home and watch NASCAR. It's not how it is. Um, of course, we're regular human beings with the same, you know, fucked up human life that all human beings have, but we weave the music and the art into our lives in a way that um, is like, I don't know, it's like sacred fundamentally. Um, and it's, it's 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 easy to portray that to the audience because we don't have to do much gatekeeping as to what we what we um, put forth um, on social media or in our records or whatever. This may turn out to be the first ever episode that I put up as an episode of both of my podcasts simultaneously, um, <laughs> because I actually do another one. Uh, it's called No Prize from God, and it's conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. So it's been anyone from tarot readers and mystics and witches to uh, liberation theologists, pastors and theologians uh, to, you know, Satir from Satyricon and Nurgle from Behemoth and Ishan from Emperor to Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter and Maddie Mullins from Memphis Mayfire, um, just all across the spectrum where, you know, I, I realize that as these are um, conversations and uh, ruminations, I suppose, that have fascinated me as much as music or movies, if not more so, throughout my life, I realized that there were all of these unique um, experiences in terms of dealing with life's big questions and faith traditions and everything that comes with it that aren't being captured in the public conversation because you go into the religion and spirituality category in Apple podcasts and you see a lot of right-wing evangelicals or militant atheists, some new agey stuff and that's it. And I, and I was like, well, where, where's the podcast where somebody interviews HR from the bad brains or, you know, Raganoff from shelter and talks about their crazy trips. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's great because, you know, in, in, in doing a, a podcast that's conversations about Metallica and in doing that other podcast, you are one of the rare guests that overlaps quite nicely into both. <laughs> so it's 
pretty awesome. Well, it sounds excellent. Yeah, I'd, I'd gladly appear in uh, both of those spheres because, um, yeah, I could talk about meditation and um, astral journey all day, and I could fucking talk about Metallica all day too. I love it. Well, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll, uh, as soon as we're done with this conversation, I'll be circling back with your camp to schedule you for the other one too. Um, Let's do it. Yeah, I love it. So one of the things that I really like to ask in the speak and destroy setting, you know, going back, you know, pre-Metallica, obviously, what was the first music that you were exposed to that really grabbed you? And then at what point did, did you, uh, you know, arrive at that conclusion of like, Hey, not only is this something that I love, but this is something that I need to participate in. I need to create and take part. And, and obviously having a, a sibling who you play music with, um, figures into that story undoubtedly but what was the beginning for you and, and at what point did you know that you weren't just going to be an audience member you were going to participate um you know so often that sort of initiation comes during adolescence and i think that uh for nathan and myself it was the same definitely listening to fm radio ksw in seattle um i would have been in eighth grade um so what what are you 13 in eighth grade 12 or 13 uh gonna... yeah 13 13 14 even when did the black album come out 91 i think that was it man i think like mm. that era of you know growing up in olympia which is an hour south of seattle there was nirvana and metallica were the two bands that really got into us at a really young age I mean, I can remember listening to like the oldie station with my parents when I was a kid and I've, you know, like I liked some of the songs, but it didn't really like get inside of me and become a part of me until 91. Um, wow. Because I remember like some of my friends who were like a bit hipper, maybe were like, oh man, I'm going to go see this band. They're playing at this uh, storage unit downtown and I was right. Nirvana, like their first shows. Yeah. Um, and also at the same time, um, Olympia, as you might know, had a really vibrant DIY punk scene. Mm -hmm. It was super eclectic. I mean, Riot Girl was happening at that time. and there was K, Re K, K Records, Records is there too, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there was all the K Records sort of like uh, super lo-fi kind of emo pop weirdo kind of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. A lot of metal was happening as well and a lot of kind of really harsh, heavy kind of crust punk kind of stuff. So it was a really vibrant scene. Um, and so all that stuff was happening at once, you know, adolescence is happening, your mind and your body is changing and your consciousness is shifting and opening up, um, new possibilities are opening up. Um, but man, I remember like having like a clock radio and like listening to metal shop in Seattle. And, um, I mean, Metallica is my favorite band. Like it's like hands down and Lars Ulrich is definitely my favorite drummer probably the one that I like copy the most of, like I've got so many mm. like Lars isms in my, in my drums. So it's cool to do this podcast. Cause I don't often get to think about Metallica as this, you know, like later in life, um, it's an older dude. I don't get to connect to that younger version of myself. So mm. this is a cool opportunity to do so. Absolutely. And that's been the fun of it for me and really the Genesis of it. And I, I won't belabor this because almost a hundred episodes deep and, I don't want to bore longtime listeners, but the genesis was really as simple as uh, I found myself uh, wanting to have this conversation and sort of naturally and sometimes unnaturally introducing it into a conversation and finding out what a great unifier it really is. Uh, because as much as, you know, the metal music that I listen to on, on a daily basis in my personal life other than being, you know, stuff that I loved as a kid fits into what I call like that decibel metal category for the most part, right? Like records that are going to end up in the decibel top 40 every year. And with that being said, I found that, you know, all across the spectrum from Mark Tremonti, who was the guitar player in Creed to, uh, you know, this TikTok star that I had on a few episodes ago uh, named Zaria, who's like an R and B rap singer. Um, Metallica is still this great unifier 
and you get into these conversations with people about Metallica and uh, a lot of those, you know, so many of the things that separate us from a cultural standpoint, just in terms of taste dissipates when you bring up this band. And I found that even, you know, uh, people who are maybe around our age who abandoned the band at some point, whether it was, uh, you know, saying anger, whether it was the load reload era, whether it was the black album, whether it was people much older than us who were bummed that ride the lightning and a ballad, which was apparently a thing. Um, those folks are still talking about Metallica every time Metallica does something like they're all they're, they're in the conversation and when, and whether it's, you know, talking trash to their buddies on Facebook everyone has an opinion when Metallica does something. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it makes it an endlessly fascinating conversation. And I found no shortage of guests when I set out to get, you know, people who have been influenced by the band, people who were influences on the band, people directly connected to them, people indirectly connected to them. It, it, it's never exhausted. I mean, I find myself maybe, you know, once a day easily coming across something or thinking of someone and, and you know typing a note in my phone you know oh yeah i gotta get you know so and so uh, you know bill Hader. i was watching barry one night and he's a garage days poster on his wall and so then i start googling bill Hader metallica and yeah here's three or four interviews where he's talked about how he loves metallica well, make a note should get him on the podcast you know it's like uh it, there's it's an inexhaustible well it seems like of um uh, you know, conversation around this band. And I love that you brought up Lars and his drumming in particular, as this is something I also love to talk about. And particularly when I have drummers on, you know, whether it's been Mike Portnoy or Igor Cavalera, um, Mark O'Connell, the drummer from Taking Back Sunday, again, this like cross genre thing. Um, I love talking about it because you know, one of the laziest and hackiest criticisms to make at this point of Metallica is to complain about Lars, whether it's his personality or his drumming. And I myself am a massive, unabashed, unapologetic fan of both his personality and his drumming. So <laughs> it's, and, and I'm always delighted to, uh, to have folks on the podcast to recognize those things and, and see it the same way. Yeah, man, I just, I just get it. I, I, I see, I mean, I don't know the dude. Right, but, me neither. Um, it's kind of obvious that he's kind of the business guy in the band. Mm -hmm. he, it seems like he's the one who, after the show, he's not just like checked out necessarily. He's talking to the tour manager, like, how much money do we make tonight? Where's tomorrow? Are these logistical things taken care of? Um, I think that one of my theories is, because the dude's a pretty sloppy drummer and the dude has some pretty um, uneven performances to the point of being like, really bad um and my theory is that the, he doesn't practice like he's busy yeah, he's, doing, uh, he, he's actually said on record that he doesn't practice yeah and <laughs> I, I i totally get that i totally get because we're a band that manages ourselves, and so we um, have to handle all of the other stuff that's going on behind the scenes and i totally know the feeling of you get ready to go on tour and you realize oh fuck we've only rehearsed once because we've been making sure the t-shirts got printed and the tour bus broke down and X, Y, and Z. And you have to kind of figure it out on the road and like get into the real, like a good groove on the road. Um, so I really identify with that. Um, I also really identify just with his like playing and attitude around the drums. Like it's just pure groove. Mm -hmm. It's just pure feel. A swing and, and a little behind the beat in a way that's purposeful. And definitely. yeah, definitely. And I don't think it's even purposeful. I think it's like, it's just like, uh, it's just coming from the heart mm, um, mm -hmm. in a way that really technical drumming is not. Um, and so that's why I rank him with, you know, my, maybe not my favorite drummer, but someone who like has influenced me the most because that's how I approach the drums too. It's like, a, it's just an instrument that transmits feeling and groove and heart and like, just like the raw root of what the music is about. Um, and the technical flourishes are just, you know, it's just this ephemeral fluff on top, but what really grabs people is the, the intensity of the groove. Yeah. Yes. Well said. Uh, that's 
a great way to look at it. And and also, I think you could draw a parallel to, you know, obviously talking about Washington State and you mentioned Nirvana. You know, I often point out that Kurt Cobain is, you know, technically on paper, a terrible singer, a mediocre guitar player. But as a songwriter and the charisma, the personality, the passion, the characteristics of his voice, his tone, you know, playing what was an unpopular cheap guitar <laughs> that he then popularized, you know, like all of those things are all part of it to where you can take the greatest guitar shredder in the world or the most talented, biggest range uh, vocalist from American Idol. And, uh, you know, most of us are going to choose Kurt Cobain over those people 10 times out of 10, uh, you know, because it's like you said, it's um, feel. And then especially with drums, because I think, he, I think more so than more so than guitar or bass in a way, more so than piano keyboards uh, I, on, on par with, I would, I would say vocals. Drums are such a physical instrument and such a extension of the person behind it, you know, where it's just, it's like, I mean, not, not to take anything away from guitars, of course, but there's just something about that very visceral, um, you know, just heaving your whole self <laughs> into propelling that thing. Uh, that's, that's just not, there's no real comparison. No. And I mean, that's the thing in metal that I always have kind of um, not really resonated with is the whole approach with like triggers and this really light hitting technical approach. Mm-hmm. because um, I was a big fan of Morbid Angel. And that was one of those bands that um, we sort of fantasized about and had these uh, these ideas about because we only had access to just the CD. Yes. And maybe a poster we got out of whatever magazine there was back in those days. This and guy's we... carving up his arm. <laughs> yeah. That one. <laughs> and then we, I, we snuck in to see Morbid Angel in Seattle. And I had a spot right above... Um, Pete Sandoval looking down right on him. And I was so stoked to see like his brutality. And I was watching him playing. I was like, what? He's like barely doing anything. He's like barely touching the drums. And like, and I'd been playing blast beats for a while before that. And I was like doing it the way Lars plays like a groove, Mm -hmm. you know, like a stomp groove. Cause I thought this is how you did it because that's how the local drummers in punk venues where there are no, there's maybe a mic in the kick drum, but the only way you're going to be audible is to like, your own physical strength um, yes. is the only way that's going to get you above the guitars. And I thought, I thought that's how it was done. And I was super disappointed to see, Oh, with death metal, it's kind of like tricks, you know, mm-hmm. it's like triggers on the drums and it's like mic'd up in a certain way. And I, you know, I just came from a different school where um, the sound comes from just your blood, sweat and tears literally to, uh, to get volume and power. Yeah. I used to, uh, really celebrate in circles where this wasn't a popular thing to be advocating for, but uh, the band Zayo in the late nineties, Jesse Smith, their original drummer, he was, he's one of my favorite live drummers to this day of all time. And he would do kind of like the guy from Rorschach. He would like, you know, set up his kit uh, facing the wrong way, quote unquote, or what oh, he just, he did yeah. weird things, but I he, remember that. But he, and he just, he had so much power and exactly as you said, because they're playing in a VFW hall or an abandoned church or whatever, you know, these like makeshift DIY venues where there aren't any mics on the drums at all. And he's competing with, you know, the Marshall stacks or whatever. And I remember taking a friend of mine who, this is, you know, years ago, but my buddy Gordon who worked at Relapse at the time and Gordon had like, you know, a little bit of the sophisticated metal palette and I was always talking up this guy's drumming and we went to go see them. And I remember him standing there watching Jesse play with me. And he turned to me and he said, you're right. This guy's like a relapse drummer, <laughs> you know, and this, and, and, and yeah, that same thing where uh, I remember playing a, a Zayo record for someone. I have the specific memory of a friend of mine. who's a musician saying, Oh, this guy needs a metronome. It's like, yeah, 
He really doesn't though. <laughs> you know, like you're listening to an album that doesn't have triggers and wasn't made in Pro Tools and doesn't, you know, isn't all snapped to a grid. And uh, yeah, it's a little, uh, they're all playing with each other. So it's going to, it's going to go off the rails a little bit and they're all going to find the center again, you know, like, um, man, exactly as you said. And, and and that's not to say, I mean, look, you know, I've watched YouTube videos of like whatever drummer is in Cradle of Filth this week. And there's of course a talent and an excitement and an interesting thing happening in that like pitter patter of, you know, you're only hitting things as hard as Peter Chris. <laughs> and yet it sounds I, like, come... it's, you know, I've come to oh, yeah. appreciate that stuff too. Like uh, um, Paul Barker, who is the drummer in Cradle Filth and their best days. I mean, I yes. love that guy. Like I love uh, his... Nick, Nick, Nick Barker. Oh, Nick Barker. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. There's been a lot of Pauls in Cradle. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul Allender, Paul Ryan. Yeah. Easy mistake. Um, yeah. He's yeah. Nick Barker's great. And, and someone who's always fascinated me, on the other end of this spectrum, you know, we're, we're both sitting here advocating for like power and hard hitting and all that. But I've always been fascinated seeing Gene Hoagland because, yeah, I grew up loving Dark Angel. And of course, the records he made with Death, those are actually my favorite Death records. And the first time I ever saw him live, which I think was with Strapping Young Lad, having had listened to him my whole life and not really seeing him much or whatever, other than a couple music videos on Beavis and Butthead. Uh, seeing how he just, he looks like a jazz guy. Like he looks like he could take a nap, you know, and here he's doing like this complicated, but not just complicated for its own sake, like this very rhythmic, amazing stuff. And then you look at him and he's just, he's just, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to describe in the podcast format without acting it out, but I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, I definitely know. No, I'm a huge Gene Hoagland fan and he's hard hitting. Like he, you've seen how he practices with those weights yeah. on his ankles yeah. Yeah. with the Doc Martens and shit. Yeah. Yeah. I watched a little bit of his Twitch channel for the first time uh, just a couple of days ago, trying going down the Twitch rabbit hole a little bit. And he just sits, he has a, a wide angle of him sitting behind his kit and then he has a little picture in picture and the other angle is a close-up of his boots and it's called the hoof cam. <laughs> and you're just watching dude. him, you know, play his double kick and yeah, he just sits there on Twitch reading comments from kids and they're like, Hey, uh, play war ensemble by Slayer. And he's like, okay, that sounds fun. And he just starts playing. Like, like people are just calling out songs, not his songs, mind you, just songs. And he just knows them and just starts shredding them. And then apologizing. He's like, oh yeah, I messed up this. It's like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> there was a mistake in there. Where? He's a drummer's drummer for sure. Yeah. It's mind yeah. blowing. Yeah. And and this, this obviously circles us back around to Lars because another thing that I always point out about his his playing, and, and yeah, and this is to take nothing away from because that's a whole other conversation which we could get back to about the role that he plays outside of the music. Um, and even creatively, because he's, he's the one who picks the set list. Uh, he arranges the songs with James, you know, Inner Sandman being their biggest song from their biggest album. It's basically one riff for five minutes. It's a Kirk Hammett riff, but Lars arranged the riff. Kirk came in with something very different and then Lars broke it in pieces and said, what if you did this and then you put this here? And that's that song, you know, and it's like, Dude, that is <laughs> that's so much more than than uh, meets the eye, I guess, uh, on the surface. You know, when you start digging into what goes on. But what I was going to say about the the playing is he does these fills and these motifs and these things that are so identifiable and so signature. Because there are a lot of songs, particularly in rock music, even more than obviously extreme metal. But a lot of times the drums are just like, hey, if you're keeping the right tempo um fills and accents and things like that are, are kind of whatever you want like you know people are going to recognize the song if you're like a cover band or something but if you're covering sad but true and you're not doing all of the fills the way they are on the record it's not the same song <laughs> you know like oh yeah. and that's so, yeah, the Incredible. Yeah, the drums are like the drums are this part of this a crucial part of the songwriting and it's because they're so minimalistic um it's yeah nothing complicated nothing fancy but it's exactly the right very simple motif 
in exactly the right spot. And I think you're right. It comes from the fact he's a, you know, a big part of arranging the songs. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate that because arrangement is something that is so important to Wolves in the Throne Room because our songs can be really long. Like some of our songs mm-hmm. are 20 minutes long. And the art of arranging a 20 minute song that doesn't feel like a slog yes. um, is something that, um, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but we're really good at. Like You absolutely one, are. One thing that people remark is, shit, we just listened to a 20 minute song and it flew by and it felt like five minutes has passed or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all about the arrangement. That's all about warping time and working with time using like just the amount of right amount of repetition in just the right spot to, uh, um, I don't know, kind of like create this alternate dimension that you can fall into. Yes. Uh, well, man, super well said. By the way, I'm, this is already one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things about Wolves is that you arrange those songs in a way that even with that kind of duration, I find myself wanting to hear certain parts again. And that, that's like, that says everything, you know, that it's not a slog. There are certain doom bands, I think, that can pull that off too, where, you know, to just look at it and go, well, that's a 12 minute doom song. Not a lot is happening, but then to listen to it and it doesn't, yeah, you feel like you're living in it. You know, I, those kind of songs can be really immersive if they're arranged in just the right way to kind of take you on that journey, you know, and obviously this goes to, you know, to live is to die and call of Cthulhu. And um, I mean, even master puppets, the song, which is, you know, kind of the, if you were to tell someone who's never heard Metallica, what Metallica sounds like, that's probably the song you would play because it incorporates so much of what they do. And that's another one. It's a pretty long song. I mean, it's not wolves length, but it's long by like, you know, epic. Yeah. By 1986 standards, certainly next to like the Bon Jovi records and stuff that were out. Um, it's very uh, serendipitous that the Black Album was your entry point because as we're recording this, you know, this year is the 30th anniversary of the Black Album and they just announced the uh, expansive kitchen sink insane collector's addiction box, which is also accompanied by this uh, charity project where 50 plus artists are covering the 12 songs from the black album. Um, so we're, uh, we're very the black album is very much top of mind right now. Um, and man, what a perfect record <laughs> thoughts. I, you know what I have? Oh yeah, no, I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts. I go back and forth on that record. I, I listen to it sometimes and I'm like, man, what a flawless jam and, piece of art and i listen other times and i'm like man there's not even one good like sabatru and enter sandman are good <laughs> as sort of iconic mm-hmm. you know a uh, set list favorites but like there's not one other good song on there and then i'll listen to it again and be like oh man no no it's actually really good and then i'm like oh man there's a lot of filler and i go and then i listen to it again and i'm like why did they put that stupid i listen on headphones why did they put that stupid tambourine like it was just coke thinking like obviously like or just classic overproduction. Yeah, and like uh, like like Noel Gallagher when he when, when so people asked. Yeah, sorry. Oh yeah, I, I can. So I can I can see it from uh, many different angles for sure. Yeah, and, and and again, it's what makes it so worthy of, of conversation. And uh, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt, but when you said Coke thinking, it reminded me of when people asked Noel Gallagher about the Oasis record "Be Here Now," and he's just like, "What's well, the sound of cocaine?" <laughs> It's just, you know, that's why there's a thousand things happening at, at, you know, max volume throughout that whole record. Because that sounds good when you're on a lot of cocaine. Drugs are a thing in music. It's a, it's a, it's a fact. Um, you know, what's interesting too, is you made the point about the, uh, the set list favorites, so to speak. And when, I believe the first time Metallica did the, album from start to finish celebration thing it was for the 20th 30th anniversary 20th anniversary of master puppets they did master puppets from start to finish and then it very you know one of their ryan music festivals they did ride the lightning from start to finish which i think was the first time they'd ever played escape live but when it 
came around to doing a black album tour and they did black album from start to finish they did the record backwards and first you hear that and you're like why would they do it backwards the way people do these records is start to finish that's kind of the point and then i thought oh because all of the hits are the first half of the album so if you start struggle with it oh, yeah. it's so fr it's so front loaded yeah yeah and that was just and it was of course man. genius sucks oh i love a wolf and man <laughs> i can't hear it without hearing the newstead backups live that's just oh it's brutal in his intensity <laughs> <laughs> But I get you. I don't. I certainly don't love every song in their catalog, um, you know. Despite them being my my favorite band, nor nor do I feel like they would want us to. That's another great thing about their band is they're they're fans, you know, like we are. Like they they understand kind of that fan mentality of of loving a band or, or a sports team or whatever. And you don't always like every decision. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't love the whole thing. What was the record with Lou Reed? Uh, yeah, for example. <laughs> what, was, what was that? What was that? Because that was a tour favorite. It was like some tour in Europe, and that was just on. on oh, wow. Like, yeah, we, we couldn't take it up. It was just like with our jaws dropped to the floor, like, what the junior dad? What is going on around here? <laughs> it was very entertaining. Yeah, I, when I had uh, Rob Flynn from Machine Head on the podcast, he told me about they used to have a thing you know, doing the drive from the Bay Area to LA, the San Anger challenge of <laughs> put on San Anger and, and how, how, how much of it can you do on that drive until you just have to stop. And I, I, I will admit that with, I think maybe one exception, I haven't made it all the way through an, an entire Lulu song before. I try every, every couple of years I go back and I'm like, this is when I'm going to get it. <laughs> and then I get like it's halfway a into a song and I'm like, Nope. <laughs> but um, that's the art side of it I too am, though. Right? I am the table. I am the, I am the table. That's the that table. was the um, iconic, iconic uh, call from Hetfield on that one. The very memeable lyric. Yeah. It's, you know, my, my, my stance on it is very simple. I understand doing it you have this opportunity to make this weird record with lou reed make it i just wish that it had been set aside and saved for some day when you know god forbid when the band can't be active anymore that they become a legacy band where they're like digging stuff out of the vaults and that's when you go you know they they did this weird art record with lou reed based on like a german opera from the 1930s or whatever <laughs> Here's this, and and if it were to be examined as like this curiosity, you've been on the management team. <laughs> if only, right? Well, that's okay. why. Uh, yeah, they should. Uh, they should bring you on to help make these good decisions. <laughs> I, that, I well, wouldn't say no to that. About Saint, here's my thing with Saint Anger. So Saint Anger, I've never actually never listened to it, but for me, the real relevant work of art during that period is, of course, some kind of monster. Which of course, I yes. love. I've seen that movie, 20, you know, twenty times. And like every time we begin a studio project, we we all sit down and watch that movie. Mm -hmm. um, not even as a cautionary tale, but just as a like spiritual nourishment um, about life in the studio and life as a band and the incredible high comedy and tragedy and humanness that is expressed in that film. Um, and so for me, Saint Anger is just sort of an epiphenomenon to the majesty of some kind of monster. Agreed. It's almost like a, uh, a soundtrack album to the motion picture, <laughs> you know, music, music from the film. Uh, yeah. And it, it's one of the things again, that's, yeah, it's so, you know, the vulnerability, the trust with their audience, all of those things that went into making that, let alone releasing it. And then add to that, that you can, anyone in any kind of working relationship, creative relationship can relate to what's happening in that film, even if the stakes aren't multi-million dollar stakes involving these huge organizations of people. 
and fans all around the world. You can still, you know, I, I actually read a book that, um, which one, which got Joe Berlinger, um, that Joe Berlinger wrote about the making of that. And he talked about how him and uh, the late Bruce Sanofsky, the co-director, the two of them were going through their own relationship, partnership, trauma, upheaval during the making of that film simultaneously with what they were filming and that filming that and making it and being around Phil Toll and all of that really helped their relationship <laughs> off camera as they were documenting, you know, the relationship in Metallica. And uh, yeah, it's extremely relatable in that sense. I think much like Spinal Tap, it's one of those movies that's kind of a, a rite of passage for bands because every band can look at it and go, yep, mm -hmm. been there, seen that, you know? <laughs> It's yeah, it's really it can be so on the yeah, much like spinal tapping, it just can be agonizingly on the nose. I actually get to see that at Sundance. And it was, you know, you you talked you talked about the jaws on the floor with Lulu. Um, that was a jaw on the floor moment, you know, seeing such an intimate look at this band that you love and and understanding all of the different choices and attitudes and and viewpoints of, of various people involved, you know, understanding why they put it out, but then also seeing like Newstead being interviewed and understanding why he didn't want to participate, <laughs> you know, it was like so many angles. And that's part of what's great about it is that it, it gives voice to all of those different opinions. I got so mad at Newstead during that, watching that movie, I lost so much respect for him. For me, he's the villain of the film. Oh, wow. Go on, elaborate, because oh, a lot of people, he's the hero. Oh. I'm not saying he is to me, but no. yeah, give it to me. No, no. Like, I mean, I just really relate to what James was going through. Like he was like courageously starting to work on his trauma, like mm -hmm. his deepest pain um, and was doing it. It seems like, um, and, and, and Neusta didn't see that. He was like, come on, man, just man up, get through it. Mm -hmm. And James was saying, no, man, I'm like about to fall apart because I have unhealed wounds. I have trauma. I have all this stuff that I'm, and I'm sorry. It's like exploding all over everyone around me. Um, but for Newstead not to see that and not see that James can't just man up, um, that he needs to go through this process, even though it's destroying everything around him, um, I thought was really petty and small-minded and really childish and i'll never it's just uh i'll never forgive uh newstead for that yeah and it's interesting because you know in so many ways you know when you look at the various duos within metallica and, and the relationships between any two individuals of course the james and lars relationship the lars and kirk relationship kirk and kirk and newstead you know take your pick James and Jason really had so much in common in terms of like, they were the two more sort of macho blue collar, uh, you know, with, with, obviously Lars had this very bohemian worldly upbringing and uh, Kirk even just being from the Bay, but, but yeah, um, you know, Jason coming from the Midwest and James with his background and interest, they seem to have a lot of commonalities. I remember seeing this, I think it's a deleted scene but uh, someone in the Metallica camp who worked for them at the time had talked to Jason and comes in the room and, and tells them about the, you know, it's like gossip basically, but he's telling him about how he just was on the phone with Jason and Jason was saying this and Jason was saying that. And James very thoughtfully, you know, post rehab says, I understand where he's coming from. He's like, I, that's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> you know, it's like, a year ago or whatever, like I would have, I would have said all of those same things that he said to you about all of it. And uh, I wonder, and I would hope, you know, all these years later, cause I mean, we're, gosh, we're almost, yeah, we're like 20 years on from that era um, that, you know, now that Jason's happily married and lives in Florida and playing country songs and uh, painting, he's been painting for years now. I would hope that he's, he's had some sort of evolution somewhere where maybe he's yeah. able to look back on that with, with some more empathy and 
and less of that you know yeah cowboy up man what the do you bro what the heck i I shouldn't be so yeah i shouldn't be so hard on him i mean like i've been both of those people i've been the person who's like come on man get it together not seeing the pain that someone's going through yeah and i've been the person completely falling apart and like um uh you know making a big fucking mess for everyone else to have to deal with my own process well, no, I think that's being a whole person, you know, because I, I think I've been both of those people as well. And I, uh, I appreciate that vantage point that you're bringing, because it's one that I think is very protective of what was a very important moment where we saw this like, invincible person being really vulnerable. And then when you see people being insensitive to that, of course, it, if you have empathy, <laughs> it makes you it, it, it puts you on guard and that, and that actually, and I've never, I've never heard it described that way. And I think that you have an extremely valid point and it makes me kind of recontextualize a lot of that, even just in relation to, you know, he fucking left the band, man, you know, like how they, those guys felt uh, at various points about his exit. And um, yeah, it's, it's really easy to mythologize him because look, whenever somebody leaves, a legendary band or passes away they're suddenly absolved of anything that that band does going forward that you don't like you know how many times have you seen or heard people going oh cliff would have hated this and cliff would have hated that it's like dude cliff was a dude in his 20s he was a kid you know not to mention if you actually are, are really taking a hard look at it he was the guy in bell bottoms who you know was praising like simon and garfunkel uh, he's the guy doing the interviews on the master of puppet cycle saying everything doesn't have to be a thousand miles an hour. You know, we like melody and whatever, like, you know, it's, if anything, he, he may have drugged them into, uh, you know, thin Lizzie and Zeppelin and all of that sooner, you know, but it's, but when these heroes are taken from us in their prime, you know, they become these, it's kind of like, you know, all these, uh, arch conservative like white nationalists who quote mlk every time there's like a, you know an insurrection somewhere martin luther king wouldn't have liked this it's like ugh. you know it's really easy to uh, appropriate these these characters and, and bend them to your your will you know so uh, because i'm a massive metallica fan because i do this podcast um you know people friends acquaintances people are always texting me dming me emailing me metallica related stuff which i love i invite that i'm very happy to receive all that stuff what i don't love is when people tag me on instagram or whatever or send me something that's bashing lars or that's like a you know cliff would hate metallica now sort of thing um i'm not so over the top that it's a that it's a block but (laughs) it's like dangerously close to me just blocking them because it's like yeah i don't I think it's hacky. I think it's lazy. I don't agree. I don't think you're cool or cred or, you know, I think that <laughs> you're not very thoughtful. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, no, I'm not. That's, I know that's the joke, but I'm not into the joke. I actually really appreciate uh, Jamie Joseph from Hatebreed sells a shirt on his web store that just says Lars was right. <laughs> About uh, Napster? Uh, yeah, or just everything. It, just, it literally just says Lars was right, but yeah, that's the that's the implication. <clears throat> Lars was right. He was, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah. The, the prescient gnome saw the future, indeed, and went out, put you know, put his neck out when plenty of people behind the scenes agreed with him and weren't courageous enough to put themselves out there and and take those shots and. You know, simultaneously, you had Fred Durst going on a Napster-sponsored free tour. And it's like, cool, so Napster paid you guys a bunch of money to go out and play for free. Okay, so that's sustainable? Like, that's not just like a feel-good moment for a summer? Like, what, Limp Bizkit's going to tour forever and not charge for tickets? And also, Napster got that money from where? How? I thought Napster was this like altruistic, like let's all share art company. How do they have hundreds of thousands of dollars? You know, and that was always his point was like, 
you know, not only was it just about control for them, but it was also like, look, this isn't a revolution in freedom with free music. This is fat cats still making more at the expense of the artist. It's just different fat cats now. It's just going to transition from, you know, old guard music industry people to like tech dorks. <laughs> You know, as when you when you see when you see the mansion that Kim.com lived in, you go, oh, that's so weird, though, because his whole thing is like free movies and music. How does he have this like compound that looks like, you know, El Chapo lives there? There's money somewhere, you know, Did it all for the nookie, man. Did it all for the nookie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Lars is uh momentary defense of Limp Bizkit was, was uh, I'll, I'll take a million Lars white leather jackets over that any day of the week. Oh, I, I love Lars in the white leather jacket. It's a great look, I think. <laughs> I do too. I just, 100% down. 100% down. 100% down with a Kip Winger dartboard too. Who doesn't love that? Big time. They should sell that. <laughs> that should be in their merch store. <laughs> dartboard with Kip Winger's picture on it. Give him royalties. Everybody wins. I, I do have good management ideas. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, so what was your first opportunity to see Metallica live or have you had one? I have only once and let's see, it was during the black album era at Memorial stadium in Seattle. And like, definitely my mom drove me up there with Nathan and maybe a few other sort of like stoner friends. And it was, I, I sustained hearing damage that I live with to this day. It was the loudest concert in Seattle's history. And I was right up front and it was, it blew my head off for real. It was so fucking awesome and uh, insane and dangerous. There was like some guy like running around in the pit, like shirtless, this big muscle bound guy with a hypodermic needle that he stuck into his eye and like injected some crazy must, I don't know, speed, whatever, like injected something into his eyeball in the pit. And we were like, you know, 13, Nathan was probably 12. It was nuts. It's like what a parent uh, imagines happens it, there, but doesn't except that time it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it totally happened. It was all happening. Um, but at the same time, like at the same time, like there's something, there's kind of magic in those kind of pits where no one really gets that hurt usually, even though it's, completely insane especially for little children to be trampling around with all these uh you know seattle hessians mulleted hessians yeah um that's the only time i've seen them and i mean that might be enough like i was gonna say what a great show i saw the hellfest lineup come out oh dude what a great show and because like you know all the festivals have been pushed forward due to covid we're not mm-hmm. on that bill even though our records coming out and we should be blah 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 and but the only thing i really care about is like oh man i really want to be on the same bill as metallica yeah that would just be that that would be kind of like we made it you know the end i'm That's done i want to write off in the sunset bound to happen at some point have you um have you been aware of any awareness in the metallica camp of wolves uh because they i mean Lars in particular, that he certainly knows about everything. <laughs> Even when you look at the artists that they've assembled for this tribute album, it's like, I hadn't heard of like 10 of the artists on there. Um, about... <laughs> He's a hip dude. No, man, like, like, get me in touch. You know, you know who would be the most stoked? Hmm. Like the 100% most stoked is my mom. <laughs> all she ever talks about is when are you boys gonna play with metallica you gotta find someone talk to your booking agent see if you can get a hold of lars <laughs> see if you guys can open for metallica send a fax it'd be, it'd be <laughs> dream come true uh that's brilliant i'll send a fax to that's, that's bro i i bet he's aware that would just that would be my suspicion um i uh, used to manage the band the dillinger escape plan and uh, when the band finished, uh, they did a like exit interview cover story with Revolver and Lars actually interviewed them. Uh, Greg and Ben uh, flew up to uh, the Bay and did that interview. And he, yeah, he's very, you know, they know about Dillinger. <laughs> I would bet money that someone in that band, possibly Kirk and almost definitely Lars, is familiar with Wolves in the Throne Room. Has heard the name, knows oh, something. Yeah, has heard Kirk. something. Yeah. For yeah, sure. Chris buddies with a lot of those like Bay Area black metal, like John Cobbett and 
mm-hmm. those fellows. I don't know if you know them, but from Hammer's Misfortune and Ludicra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we should, I mean, I would love, I mean, yeah, Metallica. Let's do it. <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> um, that show. Give me a call. Send me a fax. Send me a fax. That, that show at Memorial Stadium, was that um, did Suicidal Tendencies play? Yes. Okay, yeah. So that would have um, been. Let's see, Alice and Shane's. Yeah, what year would have that been? Well, the, if it was 94, they would have had. Uh, they would have had a fight, Rob Halford's fight um, with the guitar mm. player from Steel Panther. <laughs> Forgotten fun fact. Um, and suicidal. When that, I grew up in Indiana. I saw that tour in Indiana and it was uh, Metallica Danzig and suicidal. But when it, by the time it was in Washington, it was uh, Metallica fight, suicidal. And I think the Seattle show, a Candlebox might have played, which is super weird. Yes. Yes, it's all coming back to me. I'm pretty sure Allison Chains was supposed to play that show. Hmm. Um, that was at least to the scuttlebutt and then Candlebox. Like that's what people were saying is everyone's like, goddamn fucking Candlebox. What is this crap? And the story was that um, Allison Chains was supposed to play, but they couldn't for some reason. And Candlebox was filling in. Suicidal was definitely on the bill. Or Fight was definitely not on the bill. Hmm. That show in Seattle. Okay. I, I don't know why. It was Candlebox, uh, Suicidal, and Metallica. Um, unless I've constructed that memory. And Candlebox was not well received. <laughs> I can imagine. And the Alice in Chains thing is extremely plausible given the the friendship between the two bands and how much Metallica, you know, the next two albums were obviously had some shades of Alice in Chains and Seattle in general in it. And Alice in Chains had done, you know, the Clash of the Titans tour with the other three of the big four um so where they also were not well received (laughs) they weren't big yet um yeah and when i when i saw that show mike muir was uh in a wheelchair and i broke his foot or his ankle or something but he had like a like axle style um cast on his leg and got like pushed out in a wheelchair and did the whole show from the from a wheelchair but still doing all his like mannerisms and stuff it's pretty surreal (laughs) just from the waist up um, <laughs> so uh i know i can't keep you forever and i feel like i could talk to you forever about this topic um i feel like we've <laughs> we've been going an hour and i've been probably doing too much talking but i feel like we barely scratched the surface um but i wanted to ask you in terms of songs um well let me ask you this when you're warming up what if if there's going to be some metallica coming out of you what's what's most likely i hate to say it man it's got to be it's it's enter sandman that's rad it is yeah like that's like the riff that just kind of happens it's either that or rain and blood are the kind of the two sort of like tongue-in-cheek riffs but actually Mm -hmm. are actually good songs to warm up on (laughs) yeah (laughs) those are like our uh smoke on the water of our generation i think exactly oh that's killer uh so favorite record in the Metallica catalog. Uh, and I'll, gi- and I'll give okay. you the, f- well, the freedom to pick, to, to pick both best and favorite if those are different for you. Not a huge Kill em All fan. Hmm, I mean, I love it. Yeah. No, but Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Injustice for All, I love all of them in their own. It's like children. Like, I love them all mm-hmm. in their own unique ways. I mean, I'll... I'll the one that like impacted me the most is going to be master of puppets. Yeah. I go back and forth between puppets and, and lightning and uh, I'm with you on kill them all. I, I actually, I love the record, but people are often surprised. Like if I'm ranking all of the records, that's usually the first thing people say to me is like, why wow, kill them all so low. What the hell? And it's like, it's not that I don't love it, but um, if that record, existed in a vacuum if it was the only thing metallica had ever made and they broke up right afterwards it would be a really cool like cred like do you ever hear this metallica record you know like this weird oddity um but in, in a lot of ways it's very disconnected from everything that came after in terms it's of a ba- it's yeah it's their first record first records are oftentimes like that it's a sum of their influences mm-hmm. and it's it's the sound of a band finding themselves 
which is very cool. But it, in my mind, it's not even really a Metallica record because they hadn't fully become, you know, a cohesive entity. Yeah, that's a good point. It's almost like a like a uh, a beefed up version of the No Life to Leather demo. Yeah, I think so. That's yeah, interesting. That's a really great way to contextualize it. Uh, and in a lot of ways, Ride the Lightning is more of a debut in the sense of the blueprint that it really laid down. Because you can hear Ride the Lightning DNA, you know, all the way through Hardwired. Um, you don't really hear much kill them all in anything that came after. Yeah, I just, I mean, I identify with that as a musician. Um, like I, our, I, our first record is, I just know that it's made up of the influences and it's on the second record, Two Hunters, that Wolves in the Throne and really became a thing that um, will continue on into the future. What do you think, are some of the biggest takeaways, you know, cause, cause yeah, I mean, talking about influences, obviously, you know, wolves, um, Metallica Slayer, all that kind of stuff that we love. And you mentioned morbid angel and, you know, death metal and stuff that came after that for you. And then of course, just the wide, I know it just, it, you know, I mean, you guys incorporate, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, new romantic and goth music and stuff like that. That was the stuff I loved before I discovered metal. I hear a little bit of that in Wolves, uh, to say nothing, of course, of black metal. And what would you say Metallica specifically are the things that impact your band the most? Uh, and it doesn't have to be musical even specifically, but just anything really that that still sort of carries through where you can see kind of the the fingerprints of the Metallica influence and in what you do. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like an, almost an esoteric influence. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like a Metallica is like an entity. It's like a thing that's bigger than the individuals that make it up. It's almost as if I see this image in my mind of the members of Metallica are here on the, on the earth, but there's another entity that is almost a spiritual entity or it's a, it's a, an energy that they created to call them to being that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes. And um, I feel that maybe every band feels this way, but I feel that way in our music. I feel like we are in service to something greater um, that I believe is like a healing and beautiful and um, like a positive force in the universe. Um, and I think Metallica is too. Like, it's like, it brings healing for people and brings community and celebration for people. Um, yeah. Yeah. It certainly has for me. Yeah. And I love, you know, we, you mentioned this earlier, of course, but, you know, coming from that DIY circuit and uh, underprivileged venues, I guess we could, we could describe them uh, your style, you know, especially especially in, you know, whatever subgenre tags you want to try to assign to wolves, your drumming style is so, has so much swing and so much groove. And, and like you said, you hit hard and um, yeah, I hear it, it, It's not to say that it sounds like Lars is playing drums, but I definitely hear a lot of that mentality of that, that personal feel and, and vibe that um, I think most of your contemporaries lack, frankly. Uh, for better or worse, that's not to say that, you know, the way everyone else is doing it isn't cool. There's certainly great drummers and great bands doing cool things, but I really appreciate that about what you do. You know, if if, if, if we can put you in, in a category as broad as American black metal, I think that you have a groove and a swing that nobody else has in that style. Is this called being sloppy? <laughs> But no, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate I agree with you and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah, man. You're a you're a a, a human, you know, a meat a meat puppet with a spirit inside of it playing drums as opposed to a uh, a robot. <laughs> I will take that a hundred times out of a hundred uh when forced to choose, you know, between a little sloppiness and uh absolute perfection. Um yeah, man. Uh, so I, I don't, like I said, I know I, I don't, I, I want to be, I want to be uh, respectful of your time and not overindulge, but I'm um, super psyched on the conversation. I'm super 
glad that you made the time to do this, that you were interested in doing it. And, um, and I know that you don't do a million interviews, so I'm, uh, you know, really appreciative of that. Yeah, Ryan, it's uh, been a great pleasure. And uh, yeah, perhaps we'll get to speak again about, uh, uh, you know, those, that astral journeying that we uh, hinted at in the uh, beginning of the podcast. I would absolutely love to have you on there. And at some point later today, I'll, I'll email you and um, shoot you over uh, a link or something to that podcast. I think you might dig some of the conversations um, that I've had there based on the one we we just had. Uh, so yeah, I would love to do that. Um, and you can come back and talk about Metallica anytime. I would love to have you as a return guest because there's and there's so many more places to go. Like I said, it's kind of an inexhaustible. Well, I get, I get newly re-inspired about doing this podcast like every half a dozen episodes. <laughs> I have a, a conversation on par with this one where I'm like, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> nice. So yeah, we'll thank you it, for that. Keep it rolling, man. Yeah, that's, that's continuing to be in touch. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Aaron. Um, have a great rest of your day and I'm sure we will link up again soon. All right. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Be well. Thanks, man. 